everyone, and welcome to Creating Value Beyond the Deal. This is Jeff Chavez. Thanks for being here. All right, everyone. Welcome to Creating Value Beyond the Deal, episode number two. Uh, today, we have uh, a great guest, Toby Paul. Uh, Toby Paul is a, is a good friend and colleague of mine. And um, today, we're going to be talking about the ins and outs of the buy side process and how organizations should be thinking about the buy side process when acquiring a company. So a quick introduction on Toby. Uh, Toby has over 25 years of experience in all aspects of building and launching technology products and services, um, anywhere from mobile apps to enterprise platforms and worked with companies from seed stage startups to big companies like Microsoft, AT&T and Amazon. Uh, he's well-versed in the buy-side process, well-versed in the sell-side process, and extremely versed in helping companies create value uh, during the holding period. And uh, he's got a knowledge, not a lot of knowledge and wisdom uh, that we're going to be excited to, to learn from him today. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jeff. What a flattering intro. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Toby, I gave you a, a high level. Uh, I think it'd be very interesting and helpful for, for me and, and our audience to, for if you could give more of a, a deeper introduction on, on where you've been and what you've done within the industry. Um, and then we can get into the questions if that's okay. Absolutely. So I consider myself kind of a utility player in, in this business of the technical due diligence work. You know, I have worked in my career over the last 25 years to, to explore every aspect of the technology and software development lifecycle and world, whether it's business development, whether it's uh, pre-sales engineering, QA, product management, I've been a programmer, I've been an architect, really tried to do a little of it all so that I could get a good general broad understanding of the entire process. And then taking that and applying it from very small one-person startups all the way up through you know, Fortune 10 companies and understanding all the various flavors of of how the development process works. And so I found that to be a tremendous advantage in the work I do here with, with Crosslake. I do on the order of you know, between 30 to 40 diligence exercises a year, sometimes 50, you know, sometimes one, sometimes even two in a week. And so we, uh, I get a lot of opportunity to meet people and to not only apply what I've learned working with them, but learn even more from them. Awesome. Awesome. And then you think about you, Toby, and, and other practitioners at Crosslake is that you're, like you said, you do about 30 to 40 diligence per year. So on and, and companies and targets in all different types of industries. So you're able to take, you know, what you're seeing with each of those diligence and to bring best practices and and bring in great, you know, value and insight to the to the companies we're we're doing these diligence for. So that's it's very it's very valuable in my opinion, and I, I know a lot of uh, others would say the same. So obviously absolutely. you've been a lot, absolutely. So you've been a lot involved in a lot of diligence. So I think the quite the what we want to talk about today, we'll not think, but what we're going to talk today about is more about the buy side and, and the approach there. So, um, you know, first question you know I have for you is, you know, one, uh, you know, why should companies be thinking about doing technical diligence? Why is it important? And to add on to that. You know, what are some questions acquiring companies should be thinking about uh, during the, the buy side process and how should they be thinking about the approach? Well, you know, the standard answer to that is that technical diligence is about risk mitigation. So you bring a technical team in to look at the technology, the infrastructure, the software, the people who are developing it in their processes to identify areas where there's some sort of material risk for your investment, either in the near term or in the long term or risk of 
additional money needs to be put into the the company that you're investing in or purchasing. But you know, I think that there is another layer to it beyond just material risk, and it's something that. I work very hard to in the diligence interactions with the companies that I do diligence work on to engage with the teams because another thing that we can provide the PE firm and the investing firm, the acquiring firm is an understanding of the opportunities that exist. Opportunities that are about typical ones like reducing costs or increasing the the performance or the speed to, to speed to market from the development processes. But there's also ones where we simply can help you identify a, a multiplier, a valuation multiplier. I was working with a company um, last year, and we were doing a typical diligence exercise for the company, digging deeply into the infrastructure and their architecture and, and how they were writing their, their, their source code. And as a side conversation, I was speaking with one of the, with the CEO of the company and talking about trends in the market. And he mentioned to me that they had put together this little prototype of a next version of their technology and that the prototype was built upon uh, blockchain technology, which is a, a very popular mm-hmm. trend in, in technology today. And so after hearing that, oh, I've talked more about him. And it, they had not only just built a little prototype, it was a near market ready uh, piece of software. And so I went back and talked to the PE firm who'd contracted us to the technical diligence in our debrief that evening. I said, hey, did you know? And they said, no, we had no idea. Um, can we shift our diligence work a little bit? Because we'd like to know more. Because we see that that could have a, you know, a 2 or 3x multiplier for our valuation of the company since they're that close to market already. And to shift their customers from the old version, new version is a minimal exercise. So... Now, one of the things that you you should think about when you're considering doing some sort of buy-side diligence exercise is it should be more than just mitigating risk. Mitigating risk is the table stakes, and it's so mm-hmm. important that you do it. But you should be thinking about what else can it get for me? How can it help me to find my 100-day plan? How can it help me figure out if there are additional synergies between this company and another company I have? You know, don't be afraid to approach the buy-side team and say, look, we've got this other company over here, and they do this, and we'd really like to know... Do you think it'd be possible to integrate these two things together, or what about the teams? You know, is this team better than the other team? There's lots of little nuances that you can take advantage because of the skills and experience that that we typically bring. Yeah, and that's a good point. And so, you know, obviously, with each of these diligences, we're you know we start with uh, the investment thesis, and so you know these practices um, and these these engagements and these projects are. You know, when we're doing these these sessions, it's really trying to you know look at the technology, understand if it you know fits that thesis, if it meets that thesis. But you know, that's a positive point where you know a company would have you know additional technology that might add on to that thesis and and, and optimize it essentially. So, have you ever been in a situation where you've done a diligence where it might not have been so positive, and you found something that maybe wasn't there, or that you know if a company didn't do a diligence, they would have been you know. Um, in bad shape. Indeed. And I can't lay claim to having been one of the principals in this diligence exercise. But uh, one of of the people that I worked with had been involved in one at one point, and they had gone in and done the typical diligence activities. And for those of you who don't know what a technical due diligence involves, typically 
uh, you have one or two, sometimes more people come in the room. They're technology experts. They're architects. They're software developers. They're CTO. You know, that's typically the profile of the people who are doing these kinds of due diligence uh, work. They come in the room. They sit down and they spend several hours in typically an interview format, questioning, answering questions, maybe watching a presentation, as, asking questions, uh, reading some documents, answering questions, asking questions, looking at some source code, asking questions, constantly mm -hmm. asking questions. And so uh, this, uh, this other practitioner I know was involved in this, this diligence project. And they got through it and something didn't quite ring true for him. And he was like, there's something a little off here. So he mentioned it to the the P firm who had hired him, and and they said, "Okay, well, can you dig in that a little deeper? And we'll do go do a little commercial research on this." And so mm -hmm. next day they came back and asked more questions. Said, "Okay, can you show us this piece? Can you show us this piece? Um, and and really, can you demo? Can you show us how this application works?" And the company wasn't able to do that because the company had taken all their money and invested in building uh, a mock-up of the product. And claimed that it was a real product and had built fake customer interviews and testimonials and had done a whole bunch of what is more or less fraudulent activity to build the image of a company that could be invested in uh, instead of taking the time building the product. And luckily, the company came clean at that point and said, no, actually, our product is not market ready. It's not in the market. We just have an, you know, a mid-stage beta product available. And the, no, no harm, no foul in that particular case, other than there was a bunch of effort from a bunch of people that was effectively mm -hmm. wasted. But those are the worst case scenarios. A more common scenario would be, I was working on another project this past spring where we were investigating a, you know, another piece of technology, another piece of software. And that software had been developed by an offshore or nearshore contract development firm. And as we were digging in, one of the typical things that we ask about is we like to look at the contracts from these firms. We don't do the legal side of the diligence, but you know we've most of us have worked with nearshore offshore firms before, and so we understand what the contracts should look like and what kind of clauses should be in there, especially about ownership of the IP that's being developed. And in this particular case, the company um, did not have any formal assignments of the intellectual property of the source code that was being developed from the nearshore development firm. And so the good thing about it was the company went back. We notified them about this. We kind of walked them through what it meant. And then they went back with their legal team and were able to secure a waiver, you know, an assignment of all the prior IP from the development firm and the transaction went forward. So that mm -hmm. wasn't a case where the transaction was stopped, but it was a case where we were able to help that company mitigate some material risk that could have jeopardized the transaction. Absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, it's a it's a good uh, it's a good find by the team to mitigate uh, um, what could have been a, a potential disaster. Um, in terms of uh, you know, I guess during the the diligence process, you know, we talk about scope and and customers are, are really you know really interested in looking at a few parts and of the of the technology. But in in a, in a typical diligence, what are, are some areas you're you're, you're looking at uh, when it comes to the the target's technology? Well. The most common, say, scope-related things that we're asked to do are to understand the scalability of it. A typical investment thesis might be we want to see two or three or four X growth over a three to five year hold period for the company we're investing in. And mm -hmm. we need to know, and that, that let's say that growth comes from additional 
customers using the product as opposed to charging more money, raising the price for existing customers. And so they're looking at that three, two to three X increase in customers and asking, can the platform itself handle, scale to handle that additional volume of, of traffic from the customers or additional uh, transactions from what the customers are doing on the platform? And so we'll go in and we'll look at the architecture of the product and we'll look at the infrastructure and try to understand what are the costs associated with additional volume. Um, mm-hmm. Is it set up in such a way that... If you need to double the volume, you can set up another another version of it, another instance of it over here next to it. Is it being done in cloud hosting infrastructure versus physical infrastructure? Now, these these are all the kind of things that we do to to stress test the idea of scalability. And then there's the people side of the equation, which is we work very hard to try to understand if the the head of software engineering or if the lead developer or the CTO or whoever we happen to be in the room with, which is often very limited because usually these transactions are not widely known across the companies. So we often only get one or two key people in the room and that's who we have to talk to for the whole time. But we try to understand scalability from their perspective. Do they think in a scalable way? Are they always Mm -hmm. looking at the technology they're building and trying to understand, okay, what if? What if? What if? Or are they just building good enough for the existing market? And so that, you know, that often is a challenge is for a company who tries to do this kind of diligence exercise on their own to get a feel for whether not only the technology is scalable, not only the architecture and the code is scalable, but that the people are scalable in their minds that they're thinking about how to constantly and continually evolve their, their platforms and their solutions. Mm-hmm. What about uh, over the last year, you know, with the pandemic and, and people working remote, security has been a, a big part and a big, a big topic. Uh, what are some things that you look in, you know, within security? Oh, boy. Security uh, has definitely become a hot, hot spot for mm-hmm. many of the diligence exercises that we do these days. It used to be that we would do a security deep dive, maybe in one out of every five. And now it's five out of every five. You know, the typical areas that we're looking for are internal, again, back to the people. What are the internal security policies and practices and posture in a company? I mean, for me, I like to see a company who uh, their motivation, every action that you do in the company is guided by a security first mindset, a customer privacy first mindset, as opposed to just, okay, we have a secure pipe that we can push the data through and we have a secure table on a database to keep the, ta- the data inside. Um, you know, taking that particular model, there are lots of ways to secure data in your infrastructure, but there are also lots of ways to uh, have vulnerabilities inside that how your data is secured. And mm-hmm. so you want to make sure that the company is securing the data as it moves from point A to point B. You want to make sure the company is securing copies of the data that are stored. I can't tell you how many times we run into a scenario where a company is excellent, a 10 across the board on security, except they have a backup copy of some copy of customer data that they had put in a storage database on Amazon S3 one time, temporarily, and then an employee forgot or employee was distracted, or employee uh, left, or was terminated at the company, and it sat there without anybody Just knowing. Just sitting there. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing malicious about it, 
Yeah. Simple forgetfulness can lead to many of the largest security incidents in, in that we've heard about in the last several years. In terms of uh, you know, what are some of the challenges you're seeing in the in the market uh, during during the buy side diligence? Obviously, the M and A and acquisition activity has been uh, <laughs> has been absolutely insane the last few months and. I say last six months, but you know, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing currently? Yes. Yeah, so for us in our work is in doing technology diligence, moving to the remote work model has been very challenging because time frames are compressed. So whereas when you were doing diligence before, we typically would go on site and physically sit in front of people because we, it, it's kind of like poker. Everyone has their tells. And by sitting in front of a room and sitting in front of a CTO or VP of engineering or an architect or a QA manager and talking to them, asking questions and seeing them start to get really nervous, we're, we're constantly looking for those tells to, to be able to dig in and say, hmm, there's something interesting there. Let's, let's figure out what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So we don't have as much facility to do that now because we're remote. But yeah. more importantly, because we would go on site, the, the time frame for doing the diligence and the deal was much more spread out because you had to fly there and then you did it over a day or two and then you flew back. And so today, with it being remote, it can be much more compressed. And mm-hmm. so we typically have much less time to complete our work. You know, Normally, we would do anywhere from 12 to 16 hours in direct diligence with the company. So that, you know, that's one and a half to two days on site with the company. And that's since been compressed down to the typical one is between eight and 12 hours now in remote sessions, I guess, because people, it's very uncomfortable to sit in a chair for four or six or eight hours and answer questions. But it makes our work much more difficult and it makes it much more difficult for, you know, some of those more subtle cues that we see in person to enable to us to identify that something's off. Mm-hmm. Now, other challenges are just the sheer volume of deal flow that's happening right now. When COVID initially occurred back last February and March, there was a lot of pent-up investment um, capital. And as we came to the end of this last year, suddenly it just people needed to start making that capital work. And so uh, deals, there are a lot a much higher volume of deals and deals are much more competitive now than they were before. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I've had situations where we've been called in to do a diligence and we have two hours and mm-hmm. they need to make a bid within the next six hours or eight hours because it's such a competitive environment. And so all we're asked to do is figure out, is there anything that is such a material risk that it, it, it exposes us to legal liability mm-hmm. or significant financial loss? And you know, it, it's frustrating for us as practitioners not to be able to spend the time and give our, our clients the the level of diligence that that would be yeah. That's a good point. I mean, we've been seeing a lot, a lot, you know, the, the less and less access to targets because of the competitive nature of these deals. So, um, you know, high level, uh, what are some things that, you know, companies should be thinking about or some information that they should be asking for considering the the less access they're getting? Well, uh, it, you know, and it's not just less access. There's deal blur and deal fatigue because some mm-hmm. of these target companies that we go in and work with have had to deal with four or five diligence teams over the course of a week 
and they can hardly think straight anymore. Mm. <laughs> so mm. it, it it never quite goes into automatic pilot for what we do here. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so transactions closed. Uh, the diligence process is done. Uh, transactions closed. And I think this is important, and this is a, a topic that we'll be discussing on, a, on another show. But I, I'd like to to get your thoughts because you're involved in a lot of sell side diligence. You're a lot of, you're a lot involved in a lot of uh, value creation and post close work. And so this is something that I, I think would be helpful for our our listeners to to get a little taste from you. So in terms of when a transaction is closed, what should organizations be thinking about in order to optimize the transaction? Um, and if you could maybe give three to the five examples if possible that, you know, our, our, our viewers can, can listen to. Sure. So I want to state up front that I am a hugely passionate advocate for your technology diligence deal team is your greatest asset. If you think about them that way, because, you know, unlike some of the other um, deal teams, you have your commercial deal team, your diligence team, your legal diligence team, in this technology space where you invest in technology companies, we are the ones who are the closest that you'll get to being inside the company about the company's capacity and capability to develop, improve, and evolve their products and, and take advantage of adjacent market spaces or alternate uh, you know, opportunities such as upsell or cross-sell opportunities. And so we, we're there. We see it. We're deep down in the trenches with these companies and we're talking to their people. And we're seeing their passion, their excitement, or their frustration. And so if you choose to, as a, you know, someone who's hiring one of our teams, we can provide you much more value than simply telling you, this is a dangerous deal, it's a bad deal, there's a red flag here. I think that when you're interviewing or trying to select a, a deal team, a, a technical diligence deal team, you should try and find a team that is going to help you identify opportunities, where those opportunities are for cost savings or, or you know, cost takeouts or carve-outs of different pieces of business that you could then sell off or repurpose, or whether it's um, synergies between the engineering staff that if you put this plus this together... For example, I had a company I was working with not too long ago and they were struggling to find developers for a programming language called Ruby on Rails. And they were having a terrible time. They've been spending months and months and months and months. And they couldn't find any, any pipeline or, or source of these. And we were doing a diligence exercise for a company they were looking to acquire. And it just so turns out that that company had a bunch of these particular types of programmers. And so beyond the synergies, you know, the, the investment thesis of the deal about how you bring the two products and then two customer, customer bases together, there was this other piece that through what we do as our diligence side, we're able to show, look, did you know that this need that you had over here that we talked about another project that we were working on, this company that you're looking at actually has the bandwidth the capacity to help you do that, right? So aside from all the other benefits of this deal, here's a huge one for you right now. You're going to hire in your eight or 12 people in the course of a month, and you're going to be able to repurpose some of them directly into supporting your, your core product work, right? And so that, that's one example of where your technology diligence team can identify opportunities for you. Mm -hmm. you know, another one would be, um, for example, looking at the, the core technology set. Let's say... Again, another example, I was working with a company and they had been building a little AI toolkit 
right? A little AI, artificial intelligence machine learning framework to help them do some, some analysis and predictive insights from their customer data set to give to their customers. And as they were working on this, they didn't have a market-ready product. But what they did do is they took that whole little core and applied it to their own operations, their own infrastructures. They were using it to generate these predictive alerts about parts of the infrastructure running out of capacity and about to go down. And then they were able to predict that over time and be able to look at how to do manage cost savings over that. So this mm-hmm. little piece they had built as a product feature for their customers actually ended up being very valuable to them internally as a uh, cost con- cost management tool. But in the, in the diligence exercise that we were doing, the company that was looking to acquire this saw that and they had a deep problem associated with managing their cloud spend for their, for their public cloud infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to show them, look, you can take this little tool and you can justify the investment. You can nearly justify the entire investment, not the multiplier of, of you know, increased revenue, but you can almost justify the investment by how much it will save you in cost by applying it internally. And as mm. you continue to apply it internally, you continue to evolve it, and eventually it becomes that consumer product that's sophisticated and mature enough to be released to your customers. So every time, you, know, you should be leveraging your technology diligence team to identify opportunities for you. And if they don't come back and tell you, hey, here's an opportunity where you can increase, or here's an opportunity where you can save, or here's an opportunity where you can be more efficient or faster. If they're not coming back to you and telling you those things, then you should really go look for a different diligence team. Yeah. I think the, you know, the importance of the diligence, not only understanding the risks and opportunities, but like you mentioned, is it's understanding how to optimize their transaction post-close and really understanding how to uh, meet that initial investment thesis um, and, and what you need to do to, and, and using your diligence provider to create a plan to, 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 to implement that. And so um, I think that's a really good topic, you know, for a, for another episode where, you know, I would love to have you back to talk about, you know, what companies and organizations should be thinking about and portfolio companies should be thinking about during a holding period between, for example, years one to two, three to four, four to five, et cetera, on how to how to optimize, you know, value. Uh, and, and like I said, would love to have you back to talk more about that. But, you know, I think this conversation has been super helpful. Uh, and, uh, and like I said, would love to have you back, Toby, and, and we appreciate having on having you on. Of course, I would, I would love to come back and talk more, as you said, especially about the post-transaction side. As I spend a lot of time working with um, customers of mine post-transaction, helping them you know, define and execute their 100-day plan and then how to do operational and performance improvements and enhancements beyond that. So it's something I'm very passionate about and I would, I would love to come back and, and talk more about it. Love it. Awesome, Toby. Well, well thank you very much and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creating Value Beyond the Deal. If you found value in this episode, would really appreciate for you to share and pass along. Would also love to get your feedback and recommendations for topics on future episodes. Talk to you next time. And until then, be great.